you would like to follow along with the passage that we'll be considering this Lord's Day, and we're going to be considering Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 40. Where there is little or no humility, the first fruit of such a sin will be that one seeks to be first among his peers, by either building himself up or putting others down in his own eyes and in the eyes of others. He will crave for the honor. He will crave for the attention of others. This we saw last Lord's Day as we noted in the lives of the apostles how they debated amongst themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Although the extreme to which the apostles went in manifesting this corrupt fruit may not manifest itself in exactly the same way in our lives, in our mouths, in our minds, we may not say, I am the greatest. We may not actually think, I am the greatest. Nevertheless, when we draw attention to ourselves and taking credit for that which the Lord has accomplished through us, or that which was the work of others, that we take credit ourselves, or when we are overly critical of the work which others have done and must tear others down in order to build ourselves up, let us take heed, let us take careful heed, For we are at such times engaging in a very similar sin into which the apostles fell. For we are likewise saying, in effect, I am greater than others in the kingdom of heaven by such attitudes, by such actions and words on our part. But this Lord's Day, we shall see a second corrupt fruit that forms on the vine where there is little or no humility, and that is envy. Here one craves the gifts and the graces of others, not in order to glorify God, not in order to serve others, but in order to serve one's self, in order to be seen by others. And from this issues further rivalry and spiritual competition within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. For if there are gifts and graces that others possess, dear ones, to a significant degree, we should not desire those gifts and graces in order to make ourselves appear more gifted or more spiritual than others. But rather, we should desire them in order to glorify the Lord. We should desire more gifts and graces in order that we might be greater servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we might have more people serving us, but that we might be serving others to a greater capacity. Why do we desire the gifts and graces that we see in the lives of others? Why do we? If it is not to be more effective in serving Christ and in serving others, then we have fallen into 
the dreadful sin of envy. The main points for today's sermon are the following. First of all, envy revealed in the disciples. Mark 9.38 And secondly, envy reproved by the Lord in Mark 9, verses 39-40. Let us consider then the very first point. Envy revealed in the disciples. Look with me at Mark 9, verse 38. And John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. After the Lord had set a small child as we noted last week, perhaps a toddler in their midst and had said, you who would be truly great in Christ's kingdom must become small in your own eyes like this little child. You must lower yourself rather than exalting yourself. You must become a servant in order to become a leader. You must be willing to serve for Christ's sake, even the smallest, the youngest, and the lowliest of Christ's followers. For Christ said in Mark 9.37, When you serve even the lowest, for my glory you serve me and the one who sent me. Dear ones, how this truth would transform our service in the church of Jesus Christ. How this particular truth would transform our service within our homes. For we would see that no service, no matter how menial, no matter how lowly it may appear, is a service which Christ does not honor and reward if it is done unto him and unto one of his little ones. To serve, dear ones, the members of the body is to serve the head of the body. We cannot help when we serve the members of Christ's body, we cannot help but serve the head. And vice versa, when we serve the head of the body, Jesus Christ, we will in like manner serve those who are even the lowliest amongst us. And there is not a higher privilege in the kingdom of Christ than to be a servant of the King of kings and of the Lord of lords. There is not a greater and higher privilege than to serve in the court of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having been soundly yet gently rebuked by the Lord for their vain pride in exalting themselves one above another, John now speaks up in Mark 9, 40. 
Mark 9:38, I should say. And he talks uh, to Jesus. He, the, the scripture says, and he answered. John answered him, saying. So we ought to understand from this particular passage that in response to what Jesus said about becoming like a little child, becoming humble, becoming the servant of all as the way to become the greatest in the kingdom of Christ, in response to that, John answered, We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followed not us. You see, John's mind seems to be drawn to a recent situation in which they, the apostles, had rebuked one professing to be a follower of Christ. Perhaps in light of Christ's rebuke, John's conscience here is now stirred and he desires to know whether they served this man or whether they served themselves in rebuking him. Well, what was this man doing whom the apostles here rebuked? He was casting out demons in the name of Christ, the Scripture says. The fact that the plural demons is used here rather than the singular demon, as well as the fact that the present tense for casting out is used, would tend to indicate that this man had delivered more than one person from a demon, perhaps many were delivered to this man's ministry. When and where the apostles saw this man and when this situation occurred, we're not specifically told. But most likely, it was something recent since it was just now being brought to the attention of the Lord. Perhaps it was after the incident in which the apostles were unable, you'll recall, due to their own unbelief, to deliver the Son from the demon that had sought to destroy him. Back in Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. As the Lord and the apostles then passed through Galilee, according to Mark 9:30, perhaps the apostles ventured off from the Lord and happened to come upon this man who miraculously delivered those who were possessed with demons. Having just endured the public humiliation of not being able to cast out one demon due to their own unbelief, they were in no mood, apparently, to be further humiliated by one who was able to deliver many people from many demons. And he wasn't even one of the twelve. He wasn't even one of the, those who were chosen by the Lord to follow him in this particular intimate way. So the apostles forbade him from continuing to do so. And not until they are rebuked for debating 
over which who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is this incident brought to the attention of the Lord. And so it flows from that particular context. The context of humility. What was the stated reason for forbidding this man to cast out demons? Because he followeth not us. That is, he was not one of the twelve. The reason stated by the apostles for forbidding him from casting out demons was not because he preached what was false or contrary to the doctrine of Christ. To the contrary, he was doing so in the name of Christ, which would imply that he was preaching in the truth of Christ, in the doctrine of Christ, in the authority and the power of Christ. Nor was this man forbidden to cast out demons because he was living an ungodly life. Nothing is said along those lines. He was not even forbidden because he did not have a lawful calling from God to do so. At least that's not mentioned as a reason. He was forbidden because of the envy of the disciples. He could cast out demons through faith in Christ because, or he could cast out demons through faith in Christ even though he was not one of the twelve. These gifts and graces the disciples apparently thought could not be shared with any others. For they, you recall, were the greatest. They thought themselves the greatest. Well, the question also arises, well, how was this man able to cast out demons in Christ's name when he was not even one of the twelve apostles? Well, we're not told how this all came about. But again... Perhaps he had originally been called into the ministry as one of the disciples of John the Baptist and had become a follower of Christ through John's testimony and through the teaching and the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this were the case, this man was duly called to the ministry by John and that would at least give a reason why that's not mentioned. But even if he were not duly or lawfully called to the ministry of John, we can certainly, uh, we can certainly also demonstrate that the Lord at times does give an extraordinary calling to men. That God does at times give that kind of a calling to preach and to perform miracles in His name where they have not had the same access to the ordination because there is not a settled state of the church. Well, if this man had in fact been called into the ministry by John who was a prophet of God and the Lord had empowered him to perform miracles through Christ's name, that is, through Christ's power and through His merit and His doctrine and His righteousness, it is most likely that this man did not follow Christ then 
as one of his apostles simply because he had not been specifically called by Christ to do so. Therefore, he did not thrust himself into a place which he was not called to be, but was content to serve Christ in the calling that was given to him. But I think it is important to point out that the the accusation of the apostles against this man is not because he taught contrary to the word of God, not because he led a godly ungodly life, nor not because he was not lawfully called to do what he did. But the reason given is that he doesn't follow with us. Well, in what ways did the apostles offend in forbidding this man to cast out demons in Christ's name? Well, first of all, they offended in that they were rash in forbidding the man before seeking the mind of Christ. Dear ones, we will inevitably find ourselves in trouble when we presume to speak on behalf of Christ before truly knowing the mind of Christ. Dear ones, it is far better to say nothing. It is far better to be silent if we do not know the will of Christ than to speak rashly of that which we do not know. It is far safer to be more deliberate and more slow, even if it means that a situation goes on of which we are unsure, than to be hasty and to condemn that of which we are unsure. For to condemn that about which we are unsure is to become an antichrist in usurping the authority of Christ over the consciences of others. But they were not only rash in forbidding the man before seeking the mind of Christ, but they also revealed their envy and rivalry in not rejoicing in the gifts and the graces that God had bestowed upon others, but rather condemning the gifts and the graces that were bestowed upon this particular man had they not sinfully desired the preeminent position in the kingdom of heaven, they would not have threatened or they would have not been threatened by the gifts of a man who promoted the kingdom of heaven through the power and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, what what are the fruits of envy and rivalry and spiritual competition in the kingdom of Christ. Well, the fruits, as stated by the Word of God, are impatience, disorder, strife, contention, and division. According to James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, the inspired 
Word of God says, but if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Where such confusion exists within the church or within a family, it may be ultimately traced back in one way or another to envy. We desire to be promoted or given due attention in the eyes of others. And because we don't receive it, we're not happy and we cause strife. We're discontent. We're impatient. We cause contention and there results division within the family or division within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ministers and elders may envy the gifts and graces of one another. Husbands and wives may envy the gifts and graces of one another. Or members of the congregation may envy the gifts and graces of the elders or of one another. Let me say something, first of all, just by way of some application to those of us who serve as ministers and elders. It's always a good thing to begin with ourselves. If we, dear ones, would seek the flock or if we would see the flock work together as a body, they must see their ministers and elders working together as a body as well. Ministers and elders, like everyone else, have different gifts and graces, but all to be used not to serve themselves, but to serve Christ and even the most lowly of the members of Christ's church. In fact, those ministers and elders who are the most gifted ought to be the greatest servants in the kingdom of Christ. Word to you, those of you who are members. Members, you may help here as well by not looking upon one minister or one elder as being the greatest, but looking upon us as one session and as one presbytery working together to serve Christ and His people. Then the gifts and the graces of one, when they are working together, become the gifts and graces of all. There is no weakness, there is strength, because that which is lacking in one is filled by the other. And the same is true within the body of Christ. Rather than envying the gifts and the graces of one another within the church as members of His body, rather we ought to look upon 
the gifts and the graces of others as our own in a sense because we are members of the same body and we are made strong by the gifts and the graces of others. And we ought to rejoice in the gifts and the graces of others. We ought to be praising God rather than envying. We ought to be thanking the Lord Jesus Christ that He has so gifted and blessed His members or His ministers or His elders with these particular gifts. I would have you, dear ones, to remember the envy of Absalom who desired the place of his father, the king, King David. And he sat at the gate of the palace and he stole away the hearts of Israel by criticizing the lawful decisions of his father. When the people came away disgruntled about a decision rendered, Absalom told them, well, what did he say? And if they weren't happy, Absalom Absalom said, well, if I were king, this is what I would do. This is the way I would rule. You see, Absalom desired sinfully to reign so as to promote his own kingdom, his own glory, his own interests, not to promote the interests in the kingdom of Christ. Remember the envy of Joseph's brethren who did not rejoice in the gifts and the graces of Joseph and which led them to seek his death. We ought as well, dear ones, to rejoice not only in the spiritual gifts and graces, but in those that are natural. We ought to rejoice when the Lord blesses and prospers someone within the congregation financially. When there are jobs that are brought into various families, we ought all to rejoice. For again, a blessing to one is a blessing to all of us because we are bound together as God's people. And so rather than envying, rather than criticizing and being upset, we ought to be thanking the Lord for what He is doing in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, what remedies might we use to overcome this this envy and this spirit of rivalry? Let me give you a few. First, consider the greatness of the sin being that sin which led Cain to murder Abel, envy. Or that sin which led King Saul to seek to destroy David. Again, in James, the Word of God shows very clearly the relationship between envy 
and murder. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Another remedy in the next few is to consider some things concerning the sin of envy. Consider that envy is a sin against God's grace who freely of his own mercy bestows his gifts and his graces upon man. God is not bound, dear ones. We do not deserve any grace. It is all of His free mercy, His free love that He bestows upon us. Let us reflect upon that when we become jealous and envious of others. Let us remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? As if thou hast not received it by God's grace and His mercy. But now you seem to be thinking that you deserve these blessings these gifts, these graces. Also consider that envy is a sin against God's sovereignty. For it is God ultimately who determines to give what He gives to all. It is all up to His sovereign will. With regard to spiritual blessings, In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, the Spirit gives to each one as He wills. It is His sovereign pleasure and privilege to bestow His gifts and graces as He wills. And to speak, therefore, against what God has given to others is to speak against God's sovereignty. And in effect to say, God, I want to be sovereign. I want to determine who gets what. Also consider that envy is a sin against God's wisdom. It's in effect to to challenge the wisdom of God and to say, if I had been the one to dispense these gifts, I know a better plan. I know more deserving people, namely myself. I could come up with a better plan than the Lord. So it's, again, to challenge even the wisdom of the Lord. Furthermore, it is to... The sin of envy is a sin against God's justice. It's in effect to say it's not fair that he or she should get that gift and that blessing and not me. Lord, you're not being fair. So we're challenging God's justice and we fall into head, we fall headlong 
into the sin of self-pity, feeling sorry for ourselves, that we've been so awfully mistreated by God. Considering the remedies of God, dear ones, we must learn to turn our hearts from envy to thankfulness for all that we have received ourselves from the Lord. We must learn as soon as envy begins to take root in our hearts, the temptation comes to us to turn that around Every time envy comes, we say to ourselves, no, I'm going to, rather than being envious, I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to praise God for everything that He has given to me. And I'm going to go through them in my mind, the many blessings that God has bestowed upon me. Another remedy. We must learn, dear ones, to be content with where the Lord has presently placed us whether it's a time of preparation and training, let us be content. So we're not moving into the places that we would like to be in, but it's time of waiting upon the Lord. Let us be content in those times of waiting. Dear ones, if we must have whatever it is that we are envying, then Jesus Christ at that point is not consciously our life. For me to live is Christ. But whatever you're envying about at that particular point has become your life because you're saying in effect, I can't really be content unless I have that. You see, if we would learn contentment, then let us turn our focus again to who is our true contentment and our peace and our joy. And that is Christ. Because we can lose everything else. So the Scripture teaches us, so God teaches us, we can lose everything else in life. But if Christ is our life, we have everything. And finally, the last remedy we must learn to sincerely rejoice in the benefits, gifts, graces, and blessings of others as if they were our own. As if they were our own. For in a sense, as I've already stated, the gifts and graces of others are our own. And we are to rejoice that the Lord has so blessed us individually by giving to others because it is a blessing bestowed upon all of us as members of Christ's church. We come then to the second main point and that is envy reproved by the Lord. Look with me at Mark chapter 9 verses 39 and 40. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. First, the Lord in no uncertain terms says, 
forbid him not. The emphasis of this prohibition is this, stop forbidding him, which might seem to indicate that they had forbade him on more than one occasion already. Discontinue forbidding him from casting out demons in my name. Why? Why were they to forbid him not? Well, the Lord gives two stated reasons. The first reason is stated in Mark 9.39. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. That is, because one who was casting out demons in Christ's name would not be so likely to speak evil of Christ or of his doctrine, since it was by his power and authority that he was able to perform these particular miracles. But what about Judas Iscariot? who was given the power to cast out demons in Christ's name, according to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Judas certainly lived to speak evil of the name of Christ, and yet having received those powers to cast out demons in Christ's name. Well, the Lord did not say that one who performed miracles in Christ's name would never speak evil of Christ, but that he would not be quick to do so. We must always remember, dear ones, that the Lord has given us tests in order to examine the claims of any who perform miracles in his name the test of doctrine, and the test of godliness. In Mark, or I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 7, you can look verses 15 through 23, and there you will see that the Lord warns the apostles that there will be false prophets that come in amongst them. And the Lord says that by their fruits you will know them. By their fruits, the fruit of their doctrine and the fruit of their practice in their life. This is what the Apostle John also says by way of warning in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Try them. The Lord Jesus spoke to one of the churches in uh, the churches of Asia in Revelation chapter 2, and he says that uh, commends them because they had tried and tested those who said they were apostles, but were not. What test did they use? Well, no doubt they use these same two tests, the tests of doctrine and of faithfulness in their practice, in their life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 also 
alludes to these same two tests. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, when he says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. And then the apostle says, From such withdraw thyself. We're not to acknowledge, even if they do have the ability to cast out demons in the name of Christ, and as we didn't specifically look at this passage, but back to Matthew chapter 7, toward the end of that section, the Lord says that there will become many in that day of judgment who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name and perform many great wonders? in your name. And the Lord will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Not that I knew you at one time and now I don't, but I never knew you. And so the Lord gives us these tests to be able to, to determine and to be able to evaluate and make these judgments. Even in the part of those who do, cast out demons in Christ's name. Now, those particular tests were not novel or new uh, subsequent to the time of Christ. They could have applied the same test and if they found that man who was casting out demons to be contrary to either doctrine or life, they could have said the exact same thing. Withdraw thyself from him. The Lord could have told the disciples to do so. The fact that he did not indicates that this was a man who was truly endowed by God and was truly preaching and teaching that which was true and consistent with the doctrine of Christ. Thus, I would submit that we cannot interpret this passage to teach some ecumenical reception of professing ministers from denominations that teach contrary to the biblical faith which we have received. This passage actually teaches that where there is a profession of the doctrine of Christ that is agreeable to Scripture, we are bound to receive the ministry of such a one as lawfully discharged. For there was nothing in this man's ministry that was criticized as being contrary to the doctrine of Christ. The second stated reason why the apostles were to discontinue forbidding this man to cast out demons is stated in Mark 9.40. For he that is not against us is on our part. That is, he that is not opposed to us not only he that is not uh, opposed to Christ, but he that is not opposed to us, Christ and his apostles, and the doctrine thus which they teach is for us. Is for us. 
The Lord is not simply talking about being for Christ and the apostles in some broad general sense. It must take in view all that the Lord and the apostles taught as well, according to the commission which the Lord gave the apostles in Matthew 28.20. Teaching them, as they went out, the apostles were to teach them, that is, those who had come to Christ, all things which Christ had commanded, all things which Christ had authorized, all things which Christ had taught them, they were to teach to others. Not some of the things, but all of the things. All the things which the Lord commanded. This is not addressing, dear ones, one who is in a dreadful state of neutrality or indifference to the truth of Christ. When the Lord says, for he that is not against us is on our part. The Lord condemns apathy. The Lord condemns lukewarmness in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16 on the part of the church of Laodicea. Because they were neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, the Lord would spew them out of his mouth. And so we're not talking about somebody who's riding the fence here. We're talking about someone who is not opposed to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ because they are in agreement with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not to say that all those who have genuinely embraced Jesus Christ, in other words, those who are part of the true and visible church of Christ, the church of the redeemed, it is not to say that none of those can possibly uh, fail to sin or to uh, embrace what is false at times. Certainly, even true Christians can embrace what is false. Certainly, true Christians can profess what is false. Certainly, true Christians can sin, as evidenced by the sins of David, by the sin of Peter. Sins and errors will manifest themselves even in the lives of those who are true Christians. But dear ones, what we must keep our minds and our our faith upon is Christ. It is the merit of Christ that is only and always that by which we stand. It's not to say that we ought not to continue to grow in our knowledge of Christ. We ought not to be as faithful as we possibly can. Obviously, we ought to be as faithful as we possibly can in doctrine, in life, in every way unto the Lord. But when we fail, when we fall short in doctrine, when we fall short in life, what is it by which we truly stand, ultimately? It is only and always the righteousness and the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not the well-being of our doctrine. It is, in fact, the object of our faith is Christ. It is His promise that He is our righteousness. 
It is always the Lord that we turn to by which we stand. As I close, dear ones, we should carefully consider how ashamed we should feel when we do, in fact, speak evil of the one who has only ever blessed us. When evil thoughts come to our mind in various ways, when we question and judge his, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his grace, when those evil thoughts come, how we ought to feel ashamed that we would think such evil things against one who has only and always done that which is best for us and loved us so completely. As human beings, we have a very selective memory. We seem to remember the, the immediate situation in which we do not have what we want. But we, seem to, we so often seem to forget the countless times that the Lord has intervened and blessed us with so many things, has given us so many benefits, all for His glory, all because of His grace and His love and His mercy to us. You know, and the same thing happens. We can become so angry with another person in the congregation. We can become so angry and forget what that person has done for us countless times in the past, but because they have failed us this time, we're so angry with them. We can do that in our marriages. We can forget about how our husband, a husband has cared for a wife in so many ways, and vice versa, a wife has cared for a husband. One who has shown, the script Jesus says, one who has been shown such kindness does not quickly speak evil of the one who has shown them that kindness. Let us not forget that. If we truly understand the kindness which the Lord has shown us, let us realize we cannot quickly speak evil of one who has shown us that kind of kindness. Will you please stand with me? Prayer. Our gracious Father, we do come to Thee and do confess, Lord, the sin of envy that we have allowed to take root in our lives at various times. And it has caused, O Lord, dissension. It's caused division and contention in our families and in the church and in other relationships. But, Father, we do come before Thee and repent of our sin. We do ask that Thou would forgive us. Thou would show us, O Lord, the heinousness of this sin and what it leads to. What are the fruit of this particular sin? We ask our Lord and our God that Thou would rather cast us and cast our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ Cast our eyes upon the many things that we have to be thankful for. Cast our eyes upon the rejoicing that ought to be occurring in our lives at the 
at the benefits and blessings and graces and gifts that are bestowed upon others. O Lord, we pray that Thou would have mercy upon us, for we see, just like the disciples, how far we fall short of that which we ought to do, and yet we see and continue to see the patience of the Lord as He gently rebukes, as He continues to instruct and to teach His his own apostles. So, Lord God, we are taught through this example. So we are taught, O Lord, how Thou wilt deal with us in our lives. We pray, our Father, that Thou would, would therefore turn us to the Lord Jesus Christ even now to avail ourselves of His righteousness, of the merit of His work, to fall before Thee, O Lord, and to love that which Thou dost love and to hate that which Thou dost hate. We ask these things, Lord, looking to the Lord Jesus alone. In His name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.